we took the plunge pretty early on. So uh, yeah, we were doing the markets and that was at least, you know, it wasn't making a lot of money, but it was more about just getting that face-to-face contact with customers and really understanding what um, the customer wants. And that's what I always say to people when they ask me, like, you know, advice, I would say, no matter how, um, how much you think what you've got is a prototype, like just get it in front of customers. It's only when people start parting, parting with their cash that you kind of can understand how to grow this, yeah, how to, how to make your product better. and welcome to Smart Online Marketing, where I chat to switched on entrepreneurs and experts to chat about smart strategies to build your business in a profitable and sustainable way. My name is Katie Griffin and I am in the digital marketing game. I specialize in Google ads and I've worked one-on-one with clients such as Showpose, Homeworker Law and Snuggle Honey Kids. And I also have my own course teaching small businesses how to grow profitably using Google ads. If we haven't met before, I'm a kombucha-loving Real Housewives apologist alongside my love of all things pop culture. And yes, that does include the Kardashians. I'm a mum of two, a self-confessed hippie at heart with a love of all things business. Hello, welcome to this episode. Today, I'm talking to Emma Cook, who is the founder and director of the Australian Natural Soap Company. And before Emma got started as the founder and director of the ANSC, she was actually a journalist. And her and her husband, who is a doctor, Anthony, they wanted to start a business and ended up getting into soap making and she has an incredible story about building this business, starting off with markets, then getting warehousing and retail storefronts and pop-up shops and all that sort of good stuff. And it's a really interesting story about how now she runs her business fully remotely since about April or May this year, she's been running the business remotely and also how she transitioned from being a journalist into being a business owner. And then we also talk about the different evolutions of her business. So that startup phase where you're really hustling and going to markets and you're in the startup grind and then transitioning to becoming like a manager and people people manager and the different business phases. And we talk about how we initially met. We, we met, she enrolled, Emma enrolled in my eight-week ads course back in January and she was a star student. And Emma has just been the success story of why I started running this course because she has been able to take on her own paid ads account and make it perform better than it was when it was with an agency. And Emma is so switched on. We talk a lot today about bootstrapping her business, about product development, work-life balance when you have a kid because Emma also became a mum amongst all the other things that she's doing. Two years ago, she had a daughter, Eloise. So that is also another big change in running business too. We talk about a lot of things and you're going to love this chat. Emma is phenomenal. I urge you to go and buy her products and I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, Emma, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. So this is actually, I was just saying to you before we jumped on recording that this is the first time I've actually seen your face properly because we've known each other for a a little while now, but you always are faceless to me on Zoom and now I've got your beautiful face in front of me. And we were talking about how you've kind of had to um, uh, sea change, have a sea change while all this COVID situation, which we'll get to in a little bit. But before uh, we talk about that and talk about more about your business, I actually... Um, as I was saying to you, I send through a form and get you to fill it in about some stuff that, about you and just so I have all my information. And I was reading your bio and I had no idea that of so many things that 
um, were a precursor to you running your business now. So can you tell people, first of all, who you are and what you do now, but then also a bit of an intro about what you were doing before that? Yeah, of course. So, yeah, I'm Emma Cook and I'm the director of uh, the Australian Natural Soap Company. Um, it's not really where I set out to be, but uh, I'm glad that I'm here now. Um, I started off actually um, as a journalist. So I got a cadetship um, to work for SBS TV um, News. And so I was there for a good five or six years and uh I worked um, predominantly as a video journalist, actually. So I went around the country on my own um, as a video journalist, just uh, reporting. Um, that then, I think, yeah, after doing that, um, going back into a newsroom and just working at a desk, it was it was difficult. So I, I was ready to do a bit of a career change. Um, and then I just went... Um, I actually got a job with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade as a media specialist and was writing uh, speeches at the time for the Foreign Minister, Kevin Rudd, and um, uh, Craig Emerson, the Trade Minister. Um, in the meantime, um, I had a partner and he and I had always thought about, you know, the potential for me running a business or for us running a business, um, just having that flexibility because he was working a lot. Uh, he's a doctor and he was working in um, regional areas. So it was quite hard for me to, to, to you know, see him while I was doing a desk job. It's hard when um, you're both kind of, and it was always hard when you're both, if you're on the road as well and he's on the road, you're kind of like those two exactly. ships passing and... Yeah, exactly. And it was it was great at the time when I was a video journalist and travelling around Australia because I was able to say, okay, so where is he? And try and get there um, in some capacity. But once you're working in Canberra as a as a as as you know a public servant, it changed. Um, and also strangely writing writing um, speeches for the trade minister. Um, he was talking a lot about niche manufacturing and how Australia really needed to start selling its its um its credentials is, you know, just being um, we make amazing produce, um, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, say, um, yeah, I suppose just food and all of that. And in the meantime, we were always thinking, okay, so what can we do? And Anthony, as a doctor, and he has a very science background, we just started experimenting with skincare um, and then somehow got, uh, you know, we, we did what, you know, I think a lot of people when they first do skincare do, you put some plant oil in a bottle and you go, here it is. <laughs> it's, uh, it's like it's use coconut oil instead of a moisturiser. And so, uh, yeah, then he, with his chemistry background, more kind of started looking into um, the background of how to make soap. And I remember the day where he was just like, I know how to make soap. And he wanted to make soap uh, or we wanted to just start exploring the idea of making soap with really good quality Australian ingredients. So using things like olive oil and avocado oil, macadamia oil, just these amazing oils. Um, but, yeah, just then through that, uh, we started just sort of uh, selling at markets uh, and I got to the point where, fortunately, there was a redundancy round going around at um, the DFAT and I put in for it and I got it and I thought, well, I've got six months here to really see if this business is going to work for me um, before then, you know, hoping that I'd be able to get another, another job if it didn't work out. And that was like six years ago and I'm still going. So, wow. yeah. I've got, yeah. I've just been like jotting down notes like crazy because I feel 
like there's so much to um, talk to you about there. One of the things that came up for me was at what point you said that you you were doing the whole markets thing. And I think that's quite a common path to travel when you are starting your own business in maybe um, like skincare or even like beauty and and handmade goods. You, you go and do the markets. At what point does it turn from being like a hobby market business to being a fully fledged business business that isn't relying on that weekend market traffic? Yeah, so I we we took the plunge pretty early on um so uh, yeah we were doing the markets and that was at least you know it wasn't making a lot of money but it was more about just getting that face-to-face contact with customers and really understanding what um the customer wants and that's what I always say to people when they ask me like you know advice I would say no matter how um how much you think what you've got is a prototype like just get it in front of customers and then you can actually, it's only when people start parting, parting with their cash that you kind of can understand how to grow this, yeah, how to, how to make your product better, if that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, but we also took on a, I took on, with my redundancy money, I just took on a pop-up shop lease, so in Paran, uh, for what was initially two months before Christmas, um, we decided to do that. Um, and that, again, um, was, I suppose, quite, it, it was expensive and it was a real, um, what would we say, risk, but it helped me, again, just kind of start formalising the business a bit more. And that's that, because, sorry, I didn't cut you off. Do you think that's yeah. through face-to-face contact with customers? You get that real-time feedback and you can change your product because of that or you you understand what what ticks and what makes people come back or what they don't like you actually get to see that physically rather than relying on that feedback that might not come if it's if you're not interacting face to face with the customers yeah i do think so um and i think you know with a sort of market environment or this pop-up shop environment and the sort of you know soap that we were we were selling soap, skincare, um, people were really willing to tell us what they liked and didn't like. Mm. Um, and then just the actual, you know, um, reality of what was selling and what wasn't selling. Uh, so something that we would think that was going to be our most popular product moved to the side. I mean, our shampoo bar, which we brought out from the beginning before sort of like shampoo bars were a thing, um, we kind of put that to the side and it uh, was there, but it quickly became, you know, with, with all the plastic-free movement and everything, it became our biggest seller. Um, and so, you know, you only get that sort of data if you're actually getting the product out there um, and really understanding, yeah. And then, again, it was customers telling us, oh, you know, we want a shampoo bar for oily hair or dry hair as opposed to just the one size fits all. So yeah, it's that sort of feedback um, that we were really, really, I think really helped us early on. And um, it's like real-time market through. research because you, you're you getting that yeah. real-time and that's so valuable from people that are already willing to pay, like, particularly yeah. from past customers, they're already willing to pay for it. They just want to buy more. They want to buy different things. They want you to expand. That gives you ideas on where to go next. Exactly. Exactly. And like we've so we've transitioned. So after after that, we ended up getting a, a shop at South Melbourne Market, and that was great because you're still in the, that sort of market environment. Um, but on top of that, we also got a shop in Collins Street in, um, you know, in Melbourne CBD. So for most people that 
Uh, no Melbourne CBD. It's not cheap. Well, it's changed now, but rent there. So we, we got sort of like this 12 square metre shop front. We signed a five-year lease. Uh, it was probably, yeah, for a ridiculous amount of money. And while, you know, we didn't really lose that much money, we didn't make that much money. And the whole process, I feel, really helped us along again because it made us, um, again, just get that customer feedback um, and just the sort of market research. You know, you could go and pay for somebody else to do that market research, but we were able to do that in that store. Um, and one of the biggest take-homes was that we really needed to push into the wholesale and get stockers. And through that process, that was another process entirely, um, but one that has really helped us in these last, you know, six months yeah. um, with the reality that we live in. Yeah, because I can, I just feel so much for people that must, you know, have these, these exorbitant leases. And uh, if that was like we had, we still had our Collins Street lease um, and it's actually finishing up this month. But if we only had that, we would have been gone as a business. Like if that was our only way of selling, that we would have gone. But fortunately, we've made that transition to also be, you know, strong as a wholesaler as well as online. Before we get about the growth and the ability to um, leverage your online and also your wholesale sales as uh, sales channels, um, before we get there, I want to know, like, what was it like when you started out? So you start out, it's you and it's your husband. Do you have a warehouse? Do you have a facility? Like, how are you making these soaps? What is, do you have investors? Like, what were, what were those early days like? So we've always bootstrapped ourselves. So, um, and I suppose we've been in a fortunate position in, in that I have my redundancy and Anthony was still, um, you know, making a, a pretty good salary. So we were able to do that. Um, but we did... Uh, we did yeah, take on a lease for a warehouse um, pretty early on again um, and that was a case of, yeah, it's almost like that has been a really interesting story as well to go from making your stuff in your kitchen to suddenly making it um, mass scale um, and we've been fortunate enough that it hasn't been this sudden like, you know, overnight we've had to really expand our business so we've just done it uh, or sorry our manufacturing so we've just done it progressively over over the five years um and yeah it it was initially me making most of the soap so I was trying to sell the soap make the soap we were coming up with all formulations uh a lot of experimentation um and so yeah it it, it was a lot about just yeah, making it up as we went along. Mm. Um, but uh, that has also been a really interesting process in that we've, um, you know, now I don't make the soaps at all. We have a whole warehouse and we're actually through this period we were lucky enough to get a grant to be able to expand our warehouse and wow. expand our manufacturing. So we're actually, we've got a, an, another factory. So now we're going to have two factories. Um, and yeah, it's quite amazing just how much we're upscaling in this last six months to think that it came from just making it in our kitchen and selling it at a little market to now suddenly, yeah, having these big machines that still make it. Um, but they, it still follows the same process, um, of it all just being handmade. I was going to say, would the, is the formula, did the formulation have to change to scale the production? Like, did you have, did it have to change much from getting handmade to then getting, bulk mate bulk mate whatever the correct term yeah. is actually no um if anything it, we we 
Yeah, we were really overcomplicating our manufacturing process. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I can go into the complexities of soap making, but the reality <laughs> is, is we were doing it really, yeah, silly in a silly way. And so then I'm so glad that I've had Anthony on this journey because he's been able to really um, work out the science behind it. Um, so, yeah, we and through that as well, I think we came up with a re really unique way of making soap and that's what's also put us... Um, I suppose, um, yeah, separated us from uh, other competition. Yeah. yeah. I want to know how you go from being just selling through your own channels of the storefront and market to getting being a wholesaler because um, they're two very different sales processes and sales channels. Yeah. How do you, did, did it come organically in that people started approaching you wanting to stock your product or were you proactive in, in outreaching so initially, yeah, from pretty much day one of having our website and I think the fact that we were, um, our name was the Australian Natural Soap Company, like we organically got a lot of traffic to our website that were Googling just Australian Natural Soap and we were coming up. And so, yeah, from um, very early on, we were getting people that were interested in stocking our, our products. And at the time, we were selling our soap like we were making them in big blocks and we were selling them by the kilo and half kilo and we were hand cutting them, but we didn't have any like packaging. Um, and so if we did initially uh, work like lush, you were like lush. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so we, we did work with a few stockers at the time who were really keen to um, stock us um, like health food shops and it just wasn't working for them uh, mm. because it was, yeah, it was a lot of raw soap sitting there. And, you know, for us in our own store, we would be cleaning it. We would be making sure everything looks beautiful, but it would just sit in the corner and, yeah, it just wasn't working. So, um, yeah, so we went through quite a major project or I went through quite a major project of trying to um, then box the soap. So that's that was a project in itself in, entirely. And that was great because I think we'd already kind of knew what sort of packaging we wanted, that we really wanted to capture that naturalness, which I think we've done still. Um, but then through then, it's kind of like, okay, we've got the packaging, what do we do next? Then we started doing trade shows and the trade shows did really help us, um, yeah, gain traction. I guess yeah. you were also at the forefront of, I mean, there's been a lot of increase in natural soap and natural skincare, but you were probably an early adopter of that. And so you had the processes and the ability to capitalise when it really was um, gaining momentum as a trend. Yeah, exactly. And I think there were a lot of people making soap, but we were making soap at least by that stage when the plastic-free movement was really, and the shampoo bar movement was really at its peak, that we had gone through all that process. So we pretty much had... A product that was ready to like was ready for market right there and then so that was really yeah it was fortuitous yeah yeah, yeah. and I want to know I, I wanted to know about um because a lot of people probably don't realize that Australia has a really well regarded name or as a country for health products um so we're seen very highly our, our organic rating is one of the highest in the world in terms of the hardest the strictest um qualifications to be able to be certified organic and we do have quite stringent health policies around labelling and things like that. So we do have a good name overseas. Have you managed to be able to use that for export trade as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, yeah, once and particularly with our name as well, like straight away it, 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 it is well regarded. The Australianness of our product, that's probably like the biggest selling point 
uh, for us for overseas. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's 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 really helped us along the way. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah, I I don't think because I I used to have a uh, health food e-com store and the amount of overseas people that would purchase Australian-based brands was huge just because we do have that that really high-quality um, reputation. And yeah. I think the especially the ACO, the Australian Certified Organic, what's it, what's it called, yeah. the stamp of approval, yeah. that is mm-hmm. very difficult to achieve. So um, I want to know about moving from being just you to then you must have a team now and yeah. employing people and going through a startup phase to then being like a you're establishing as a business. How have you transitioned from being like basically solo with and with your husband to then being a a manager and and that brings on different challenges when you're a a people manager rather than just the one executing everything? Yeah, I mean it has been again, yeah, it's quite a journey um, because you know, I've never really done any management uh, training. Um, I think having shop fronts early on, I always had sort of retail staff that I had to um, manage. Um, and then really because in 2018 I had my daughter and so I was kind of forced to really take that step back. Um, and so I really did have to start trusting uh, other staff members to do things. I was fortunate enough that my brother actually came on board um, Uh, like he's been on board for about three years now and so it's pretty much him and I that are are really the core management as you'd say and then we've got probably about yeah we've got eight or nine staff who do a lot of the you know day-to-day kind of stuff Um, and that has been really really good um, because you know I've just been able to trust him a hundred percent that and he pretty much took over when I did have Eloise, um, you know, for those few months where I really couldn't be involved. Um, so I suppose it has been, um, yeah, it has been difficult. And particularly I think coming, you know, starting it from scratch and I was the one making the soap, I was the one selling the soap, I was the one, you know, answering the emails, just following the leads and all that. And then to suddenly entrust people to be able to do all of that, um, you know, and it, it yeah, but it's almost like my situation has forced me to have to do that. And the funny thing is, is, um, and I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I'd worked so hard. Like I was pretty much working up until the day of having Eloise (laughs) Um, that uh, then um, when I did take that step back, that was actually probably the best six months that the business has had. (laughs) So Mm, in a way because you weren't so like tightly gripped and I had around everything in that role of not just being sort of not that I was ever a micromanager but when you're there and you see things aren't being done like you would do them then you just get in there you know pull your sleeves up and start doing it yourself but with um, me physically not being there it's almost like yeah I just had to start really taking on that role of just actually managing people and being a manager ahead of like you know doing things because I didn't think they were doing things um, the way that I would do them. And I think that that's a really probably important part of of any founder or director business owner's journey is that and, and I go through this too in that well I'll just do it because I'll do it I'll be able to do it quickly. And, but then you're actually taking away from someone else being empowered to be able to do that next time. And the next time after that, and, and, and I catch myself doing things like that all the time where it's like, you don't need to do, you don't need to be involved in this area of the business. You don't need to be involved. Yes, you could, yeah. you could do yeah. it. And it can be a hit to the ego because you, you do, you're used to having your fingers across everything, you, you, knowing what's going on in every aspect. Yeah. 
and that can be quite a scary process to step back. Yeah. And I wanted to know about during the early days, the early years of a business, there is a lot of adrenaline, there is a lot of momentum and you're constantly um, being agile and moving forward and, and, and hustling for, for want of a better word. What do you do when that momentum or that adrenaline wears off and it's more that it's, okay, this is a, this is a long-term business now. I don't have to fight and grit as hard as I, like I'm sure when you go into markets every weekend and you're in your store every day and you're pulling long hours, but you don't feel like you are because it's your business. Yeah. There comes a point where you reach a time and you think, oh, I'm feeling this now. Like I'm close to burning out. Did you ever get to that period? Absolutely. Yeah, I did. And I think that it was actually the best thing for me to start pulling back and and getting other people to do that. Um, Because yeah, it's, 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 I mean, I still work constantly, um, but I'm just dealing with different things now. And there are a lot more uh, what I should be doing um, rather than, yeah. Bigger picture things. Yeah, exactly. And that's what's going to keep growing the business. And that's the best thing for the business for me to be doing these, these, um, these bigger picture things. So it's almost like if the adrenaline's there, but it's there for a different reason now, it's about just keeping on growing the business um, and, I think if I have, you know, five or six years down the track was still doing markets and still doing, um, yet working the shop, uh, I think I would have closed it by now because, yeah, while it was really worth doing at the time, uh, it wasn't really what I ever set out to, to do with this business. You mentioned that you, earlier before we started recording, you said that at the beginning of COVID, I think it was at the beginning of COVID, you said that you, or was it how long ago you, you kind of picked up and you moved from Melbourne to April. So, and where did you, yeah. you've moved to New South Wales? Moray, yeah, New South, Northern New South Wales, yeah. And yeah. now, so now you're fully remote. You don't have any choice to come back to Melbourne. And how do you not only, well, there's two, two parts of the question, how do you keep your business running when you are forced to not like you're forced to be fully remote and secondly how do you keep your staff motivated during really uncertain times and keep be the one that's keeping people on track and and feeling positive and that that their jobs aren't at risk and things like that when there is such a huge you know global pandemic going on yeah yeah i mean yeah i mean we had to make this decision because anthony um he is a locum doctor and he's always worked in regional towns and um he was always sort of doing fly in fly out but then uh obviously it was getting too difficult so we made the decision to move up here um i think i with the business was in a better place like if if COVID had happened when we were like just starting out oh it would have yeah that would have been the end of the business so we're fortunate that we were still um you know, relatively, like we, like every business, we took a major hit. Um, and I mean, particularly, this was meant to be our year to expand export. We just signed deals with our distributors in North America and Europe, and it was just meant to be amazing. That all just fell by the wayside in one day. And we had, you know, huge POs just cancelled like that. Um, so that was really difficult. And that Early time as well was really difficult because there was so much uncertainty in that sort of April, May yeah. period where the job people hadn't quite started. There was just it, no one knew how long this was going to go for. Um, so I suppose to answer the first part of the question, working fully remotely, like I had kind of already been more remote than what I had been 
um, just because of circumstances with having had my daughter and, um, you know, really wanting to look to make sure that I was, you know, I was the primary care of her as well as doing work. Um, so I was able to, um, yeah, be able to pick up and, and work remotely. And with my management team just being my brother pretty much, um, it's been, you know, we already sort of had that that relationship going where we were able to, um, you know, do our Zoom meetings and everything like that. And um, he was able to do a lot more of the sort of management of the staff at the factory. And the, the shops, you know, while they were running, they were almost finished. They weren't quite finished in their leases, so they still had to remain open. Um, but, you know, through circumstances, they had to close anyway. So, yeah, so it was really just making sure that we kept the factory going um, and keep pumping out the soap. Um, we did have a really quiet period there sort of uh, April, May, but once um, once the rest of Australia started opening up, we were quite fortunate that we have been busy and we've been able to keep relatively busy um yeah so it's it's been yeah it's been yeah I think we've we've had things have been better for us uh than a lot of other businesses have you noticed during that time that your online has picked up while maybe your export that those that fell through or maybe your in-store orders people that that a stockist of your products Maybe that's declined because there's not as many stores open, but people still need soap. They still want high-quality soap. Have you noticed that your online has picked up some of that deficit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because our strategy had already been close the shops and focus more online. Um, We had already in the mix that we were building a new website, which went live June. Um, We already had in the mix that we really wanted to concentrate online, so we were lucky enough that we weren't caught off guard with all of this. Um, this was already our plan to, to, to move online and to be able to, we always knew that we were really underperforming online and that we could do a lot more. Um, so, yeah, online has really helped us. Um, with our, uh, with uh, our wholesale, it's, you know, it's not as good as what it was, but it's getting up there. And I think we're fortunate in that we do sell soap and we sell Australian-made soap with Australian ingredients. Um, and it's uh, one of the positives to come out of this. I think people um, are becoming a lot more aware um, of what they're buying and where it's coming from. And I do think there is a really, you know, amazing push to buy local and buy Australian and also buy things with ingredients that you know where they've come from. So, yeah, yeah, that's been good. What's the transition like from, because we originally met, I can't remember when it would have was that you went through my Google ads course and I don't even know when that would have been January. Okay. So at what point did you realize that you needed to start looking into paid ads and for that to supplement your, your growth online? Yeah. Well, that's, that's been a really interesting um, thing as well. And I was so glad that I did your course. Um, so we always, we had an agency and we've had an agency uh, for about a year and a half. And they were doing our Facebook ads and they were doing our uh, Google ads. And it was just, you know, pay the fee and here's like a monthly report as to what they're doing. And, yeah. and oh. I've, it's so funny because the way you even speak the way you're like we had someone doing it and it's like it's ho-hum and that's like honestly it's 
if I had the amount of people that said that to me, like, yeah, we had this, they gave me a report. I had no idea what it meant. They told me I was getting sales, yeah. but I didn't really see the performance attached to it. And I just gave them a fee and I, I'm just yeah. like, it's just like, it's a yeah, it's thing. Yeah, it's so common. And I think also because we was, I was so busy doing other things and I think really only up until now it was, for us, it was a lot of product development. Like that's what we were essentially doing. Um, and so now we're in that next phase where it's like, okay, well, we can really um, up the marketing of this. And so, yeah, so we had this agency, it wasn't quite, I, I just knew. And I, I, I hated that I didn't quite understand yes. Google ads and Facebook ads myself. And it was really fortuitous that I saw your post um, in in the like-minded bitches. Yes, okay. Yeah, you know what? Um, this could be something. And I think I've always taken to, I mean, you know, I've done a few university degrees. Like I've thought I really want to do something that's as thorough as what you offered. Um, and so that was just so empowering for me to be able to understand it all and and then, yeah, be able to do it myself. And once you start realising, you know, obviously there's an, a, a lot of work initially, but, you, yeah, you get to that point where it is only a few hours, like, a week where you are doing that stuff. And through doing that, now I, I've really wanted to take back all of it. So I've taken back my Facebook ads and that's my next thing that I'm really, um, you know, trying to, to work out myself and my um, email marketing. Mm-hmm. I think I, yeah... Yeah, and so it's been great um, to do that. Um, and obviously, you know, we might, we'll, I'll get to the point where I'll give it to somebody else, but it will always just mean that I will be just so much more on top of and understanding where we're putting our money and how successful it is. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you can either go one of two ways at the start where you, you're like, oh, it's too hard and I'll just delegate it off. But then you get to a point where, you don't you, can, you don't have the skills to be able to tell whether that person you're delegating it off to is is doing what they should be doing or getting the results they should be getting and and you're paying for that with not only your ad spend but also with your with your fee each month and I think so I use I don't I think I've even told you this I use you as my um, when I'm think like you're my you know how people have the ideal customer avatar so you're my yeah. ideal customer avatar I use the name oh, Emma and because um, you came to me and you had um, you had an agency and things were, you know, ticking along okay, but you weren't quite happy, but you didn't really know how to evaluate whether things were going well or not. And then now you get better results than your agency ever did for you and you don't have to pay a fee. And it's at a point, yes, there's a lot of legwork to get to that point, but it's a skill that then you can use to outsource later on and be able to really easily have a BS detector that says, no, you're not doing what you said you're doing or no that's not actually true or you can't you can't get lied to anymore yeah exactly yeah I think it's really important with paid advertising to have that skill otherwise you're not only losing money on that fee but you are losing money on that on that cost as well that ad spend Yeah. yeah and it's like it's it's just that has become one of our biggest like really our website is our only um sort of retail outlet now um and so the idea like the amount of work that I put into um, getting my shop fronts sorted and then I'm sitting there and just delegating just and saying, yeah, okay, that sounds good. You do what you like. Um, Yeah, it's just, it's ludicrous. Uh, It was ludicrous that I was doing that. But 
you know, when you're strapped for time, it, it's, it seems like an easy, easy way to, to, yeah, to do it, to deal with that because and it is just such a big world. Yeah. It's such a beast, but I think there's, and, and you do get like business coaches or you, you get a lot of people that say like outsource, 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 anything you can't do, outsource, outsource. And I very much believe that, but I think that you need to have at least a little bit of knowledge to be able to, like for me, if I, want to outsource SEO, I need to know a little bit about SEO and the, the foundations of it so that I know I can, I can performance manage someone. And I think yeah. you do need to be across those, those different pillars like email marketing. You can eventually, it's not like you have to do that forever or you don't have to run your Google ads account forever. But when it comes no. time to hand that off to someone, you have the skills to be able to delegate it. Yeah. Uh, and and I yeah I think that you do need to have some sort of knowledge across all those different channels that you're outsourcing, um, unless it's design where I do not need to know anything about that because I'm terrible at design and someone else can do that for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly, I'm, I'm of the same situation. No way am I going to get into design. Exactly I think at least with design though is it's a visual thing. It's not necessarily a. Um, like the psychology behind it, but it's not like you need to understand how things have been coded or how things, you don't need to know the, the intricate, you can tell whether you like a design or not, but you, you don't have that yeah. ability to tell whether you like your paid ads account or not. Yeah. But I think still like the, the skills that you learn through, um, yeah, understanding your paid ads account, you can transfer to other, like it's basically marketing. It really yeah. is about how you're going to market your product, how you're going to actually get people to part with your cat, with their cash. Uh, so even if it is, you do have to understand the technicalities. Like I still learned stuff through your course of really understanding ROAS, which I know, you know, six years down the track I should really know. But it's it's actually you never actually sit down there if you're a business owner and just constantly just you're in the middle of trying to work out, you know, your, your product development and all of that. You don't sit down there and just spend the whole day just thinking about no. what your ad spend is, what, yeah, all of that sort of stuff. So yeah, I found that really useful. I'm glad. <laughs> I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to, um, before we wrap up, I want to know, you mentioned that you had your daughter Eloise two years ago and yeah. how has that been? That's a new, evolu- a new evolution. I find a lot of, particularly with like skincare and beauty, I find a lot of the time that women enter that field after they've had a baby, but you had mm-hmm. a solid number of years before behind you before you had Eloise and how do you then like you've got a divided heart you've got your daughter and you've also got your business which is like a child in itself so how are you combining the two of those um I think it's about just uh yeah making sure I don't know I really wanted like I really wanted to be a mum and just having her like I'm like I just want to spend this time because this is the time you know you, you don't get this time back no <laughs> what should do now but so it's been awesome to have her um and just spend pretty much every minute with her uh for her whole her whole life so far um but I also feel like yeah obviously my I was for my business my first child like it was there was just so much that I put into it um but I I think by having the two, it's a really good balance. Um, I'm quite fortunate in that I can be quite flexible with my work. And so, yeah, it's, I mean, fortunate is a, <laughs> is a, a yeah, if, if maybe it's not the right term to describe it because you're never away from your work. Mm. Um, you know, you're always taking phone calls while you're looking after her. And at night, as soon as she goes to bed, I'm, I get in there and, and try and do a few hours of work, which I'm sure you're yep. the same. Um, um, exactly so, the same. 
<laughs> I'm like, this is my life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I just think I was kind of doing that already before I had yeah. it. Like I was working 24 in the business. So at least I have heard and kind of balance it out and to be able to just, um, yeah, just to spend every day with her and just see her develop and grow has been, yeah, just an awesome experience. And I feel so fortunate that I've been able to do that. And it's the business that has allowed me to do that. I don't know if you're the same way, but I, I had a business before I was um, a mum to my two girls and I felt like the business, act- being a parent, transitioning from being just a, a having the business to, to being a, a parent as well, it actually gave me a new sense of purpose and I felt like I had poured so much, like I was almost obsessed with the work side of the business that I'd forgotten how to do anything else. And um, yeah. having a child is a really good way of, actually stepping away from the business before I felt like if I, before I had my, my daughter, I felt, well, I'm lazy if I'm just sitting around doing nothing. I may as well be working. Like I've got stuff that I could do at work and it's fun and I enjoy it and I'm being productive and I'm getting, I'm getting good results and I'm, I'm feeling um, accomplished. And then when you have a kid, you're like, oh, that I don't have to feel like that all the time. I don't have to feel like I'm being productive all the time. I can just sit and play and I can, but I didn't think I allowed myself to do that before I had my kids. Yeah, I think as well, like I think in those early stages, it was the business, like full and full, because I think I had, I put so much pressure on myself that I I, I wanted it to succeed. Um, And so, you know, and like in those early stages, I wasn't paying myself a wage. Mm. I was living off my off my own savings. So the idea, yeah, I just didn't even. Yeah, exactly. So when you're trying to prove yourself, the idea of like sitting down and just taking a day off is like, but I've got to, I haven't proved myself yet. Yeah. And so I think having a child actually allows yourself, it, it gave me permission to not have to work all the time. And I truly believe now that if I didn't have kids during this, during the pandemic that I would just spend, cause I work from home. I've just spent all day, every day working and I would enjoy it. But I also, now I have a reason to, I'm just, I'm very type A, very workaholic personality that my kids are my reason for not doing that. And I would have struggled without that. And I don't know if I was necessarily doing as much as I do now. Like I think I have, now that I do have to really organise my time, uh, I make decisions a lot quicker. I do what I really need to do quickly. Uh, If I know I can't do that myself, then I outsource it or I get somebody else to do it. Like I I think my decision-making is a lot better than beforehand where I'd be. Yeah, you just kind of can run around in circles and, and, you know, procrastinate really would be probably the best word for it. Um, So I do think that it's really helped me just with my decision-making and just being able to really get things done a lot quicker and and more effectively. Yeah, and I think I'm a much better business owner and a much better... um, more efficient when I have children because I've got I've got I've got another thing that I want to be spending my time doing as well yes I I like working and I want to be working but I also want to be spending as much time as possible with my kids and I need to be more efficient and to be able to achieve both goals so anyway that's just a little side rant from me (laughs) I've just had to incorporate like yeah in those early days I would and even well obviously not now since I'm in northern New South Wales but I would take Ellie to business meetings. I would take yeah. Ellie to meetings that I needed to. And I was like, yeah, you know, it should be like that. We shouldn't yeah. have to be like Agreed. Um, yeah, we need to we need to adapt. And I think that's another positive that's come through um, COVID is that this whole working from home, it's a lot more like 
um, accepted, and I think it will probably be more accepted that, yes, you've got a business, you work, but you also have a child and you can do the two together. Yeah. You don't need to be embarrassed if you've got noise in the background okay. or a child walking into a meeting yeah. or it's, it's, a, it's real life. We're humans behind a business as well. So I think that's really yeah. important too. Well, yeah. thank you so much for talking to me today. As, like I said, when I got back your some of the notes that you wrote me, I was like, oh, my God, I've just got so much I want to talk to Emma about. But can you tell people where they can find your website or buy your products or connect with you? Where, where, where can they get in touch? Yeah. So, yeah, so we're the Australian Natural Soap Company. Um, so you can uh, – our website is theansc.com.au or just Google the Australian Natural Soap Company and we'll come up. Um, we're also stocked in Maya and a lot of health food stores um, around the country. So, um, yeah, that's where you can find us. Well, thanks so much, Emma. It's been amazing to have you on. No worries. Thanks so much for having me. How awesome is Emma? I just loved having a chat to her. She's got so much wisdom about building a business and scaling that business and I could have just spoken to her forever. And if you want to connect with her, make sure or find out more about her products, make sure you do visit her website. All the links are in the show notes and support local Aussie businesses. She's doing great things and you can buy all her products online. And if you're interested in enrolling in my free Google Ads mini course, so I run a mini course, free mini course every few months and it starts on, a septem- on September the 28th. So if you're listening to this when the episode goes live in September of 2020, make sure you do enroll in that. It's at sundaydigital.com.au forward slash bootcamp. And it's a five-day mini course. I teach you five foundational elements of a profitable Google Ads account. Totally free, no obligation. I'll be in the group every day going live to help you out. And there's some cool challenges and prizes up for grabs. So last time we had 3,000 people join. So if you do want to jump on board that, make sure you do head to sundaydigital.com.au forward slash bootcamp and I'll pop that link in the show notes as well. And follow me on Instagram at katiegriffin underscore and let me know what you thought of this episode. I would love to know. All right, bye.